Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, our show today is about privacy and credit card and banking threats. And we're going to talk about that with relationship to businesses and consumers. And we have a fabulous guest, a wonderful attorney from the East Coast in Atlanta. Let me tell you a little bit about Chris J. Willis. He is fantastic. He is a partner at the law firm of Rogers and Hardin LLP in Atlanta, Georgia, and he's a member of the Technology Committee. He focuses on consumer litigation and information technology, computer, and computer law. His practice covers a wide variety of complex litigation, including consumer financial services cases and matters involving the privacy and security of consumers' personal information. He represents credit card issuers, mortgage lenders, and other businesses that operate in the consumer financial services industry. Chris regularly speaks at national-level seminars on a wide variety of topics with regard to consumer financial services litigation, and he has been honored to be selected as a Georgia Rising Star by Atlanta's magazine Super Lawyers every year since 2005, so that's already five years. And he's also listed in the 2010 edition of Benchmark Litigation. He is a master in the Lamar Inn of Court at Emory University School of Law, and he does pro bono work for the Atlanta Zoo. And he also serves on the facilities committee of the Zoo Atlanta and is an award-winning wildlife photographer. And I understand he has also won three contests this year, and I have seen his work. He has a fabulous website that he can share with you about the his gorgeous photography, but more information about him and his actual career as a fantastic super lawyer, you can go to www.rh-law.com. Chris, thank you so much for joining us all the way from Atlanta. Well, Mari, it's a real delight to be on the show with you today, and thank you for having me on. Well, thank you for joining us. Let's talk about credit card companies. What What is the attitude of credit card companies and other lenders toward protecting customers' personal information? Well, among the, the companies that I come into contact with, there is a very high degree of emphasis put on protecting personal information, credit card numbers, account information, and things like that of consumers. And there's really two reasons for that. One is fraud costs money for lenders. When credit card transactions go through or accounts are opened that are fraudulent, there's money that's lost there, typically on the part of the financial institution. And so there's a strong desire for them to prevent that from happening. And the other thing is there's the need for all of those institutions, financial institutions and payment systems, to preserve and safeguard their reputation with uh, consumers. Because if consumers don't have confidence that they can use their credit card safely or use their bank account safely, they won't have credit cards and they won't use them. So for those two reasons, both preventing losses from fraud and um, in preserving confidence in their own operations, it's something that businesses that I come into contact with take very seriously. 
Exactly. I know that that, you know, the more that they protect their customers, the more trust and the more you trust someone, the more you want to do business with them. So it's exactly right. And I know firsthand how hard you work to really help the companies to do the right thing. So how does identity theft impact businesses like credit card issuers and mortgage mortgage lenders? Well, there's a couple of things really with regard to that. One is that there are there's there's a need to protect uh, information from theft through a variety of, of scenarios that it can be stolen from you know interception over the internet, from malware that ends up on a user's computer, one of their customers' computer, to the uh, efforts of hackers to hack into their own systems. And really, the thing that is most notable about this area of our economy is there's constant change, and there's change on two fronts. One is that the computer systems that are used by everybody are always evolving and changing. We know that the computers that we use now are very different from the computers we were using five years ago. Hardware's changing, software's changing, and that's true both for the financial institutions. They're upgrading their systems all the time. And it's true for users. We're on a different version of Internet Explorer. Our computers are different today. And then the other thing that's constantly changing is the sophistication and the attacks of the people who are hackers and identity thieves who are out there trying to steal people's personal information or financial information. They adapt to the various security measures that the financial institutions take, and they try to get around them and sometimes even exploit them. So dealing with the constant change in this area, to me, is the biggest challenge that businesses like credit card issuers and banks face today. And these fraudsters and hackers, oh my goodness, you know, they too bad we can't get them inside the credit card companies and the banks, but, you know, it's so lucrative for them to be outside. That's the problem, isn't it? It really is. I mean, there was a recent story um, that just came out relatively recently dealing with a an online banking security scam that occurred in the United Kingdom that affected about 3,000 people's bank accounts. And it was an incredibly sophisticated attack that really occurred on the user's computer, not on the bank's computer system. But the users would visit a website and they'd see an advertisement, and the advertisement would insert code onto their computers that would do two things. One, it would keep a log of their keystrokes, so it would allow the, the program to store their passwords for online banking uh, transactions. And it would also steal their passwords for their online banking systems. But even more than that, it, the, the virus or the malware was actually in constant communication with a control computer that was located in Eastern Europe. And when a user would go on and log in to their online bank account system, it would alert the control computer, which would then instruct the malware that had been inserted on the user's computer to process fraudulent transactions while they were logged in to their bank account Mm. online. And by doing that, they bypassed all of the password changing and other techniques that banks sometimes use to safeguard those systems. And what it would do is it would look at the user's um, bank account balance, and if there was money in the account, it would transfer money into the account of a mule who would then transfer it on to the perpetrators of the fraud. And they even varied the amounts of the transfers and kept them under a certain dollar limit to avoid them being detected by the bank's security system and being flagged as inappropriate or fraudulent transactions. And this scam occurred and it affected about 3,000 people's accounts for over a million dollars. And that's just one example of the kind of incredible sophistication that we have with these identity thieves and the thieves who are trying to steal credit card and banking information. And they're constantly innovating and making a lot of money doing it, and so they're going to continue doing it. And I hate to say this, Chris, but I was just in a meeting recently, and I heard that this is happening even in the United States. It isn't just the United Kingdom. Uh, Certainly not, because the the same kind of computer system vulnerabilities that exist there are also present here. I mean, the, the, the program that these particular thieves used in the U.K. was based on Windows operating systems and Internet Explorer. And those same systems, of course, are in wide use here in the United States. And I think this is an important time to talk for those businesses who are driving by who are listening to this, and we have a big business school here at the University of California, Irvine, and we have lots of businesses in Orange County and the people who listen to us and download our podcast. So tell them about the law, how they are not protected like the consumers are. Well, we have a lot of laws in the United States that do protect the privacy of of consumers' financial information, but typically the, the definition of consumer that's in those statutes deals with people who are using the financial transaction for personal, family, or household use. By nature, that definition excludes business use, and so the protections that you have on um, so that you have as a consumer don't necessarily and frequently don't apply when you're a business user. And you may be stuck with a loss 
if someone infiltrates your computer and is able to perpetrate these kind of fraudulent transactions through your bank account. So if you're doing online banking, it's a good idea to at least check every day or at least every other day to see what's going on so you can alert them right then and there. That to me is one of the most powerful things that anybody, whether they're a consumer or a business, can do to protect themselves is to regularly monitor your credit card statement, your bank account, things like that, because detecting the fraud early is one of the most important keys to making sure that you can try to contain and prevent the damage from it from going further. You know, Chris, I set up these alerts, so every time there's any change at all in any of my bank accounts, I get an email alert. And it'll tell me how much was electronically transferred, or it'll tell me what's going on, but mostly for electronic electronic funds transfers, which I might do from the bank. So I get that every single day. I get these alerts, anything that has changed. So that helps without me having to actually log in every moment when something, when I might be worried about something. So that's another thing you can do. I'm sure they have other banks, but with the Bank of America, that's what I do. I get these alerts and that sure helps. I think that's a great tool. And I think it would be good for lots of people to use that because today a lot of people are walking around on the street with almost instantaneous access to their emails over their phones. Exactly. So you literally would learn about a fraudulent transaction within seconds of it happening. And that's the best way to prevent it from actually causing a financial impact on you. Right. And then immediately call your bank and tell them what's going on and and find out the name of the person who you're talking to. Because I, poor, poor lady that I helped this year, she did go through something like this and told them right away. And it, she she saw when about $30,000 was going to be siphoned out of her account. It hadn't happened yet, but it was pending. And she contacted them right away, but the money still got lost. And then it took her six months until I could help her get it back. But But it's always important to have that audit trail to show that you called immediately because that is going to help you to get your money back. Right. And it also really helps. Not only does it help you as an individual consumer, it helps other consumers too. Because if someone's stealing money out of your account or doing transactions like that, they may be doing it to more than one person. And if you bring it to the attention of the bank in a timely way, it can help prevent that harm to other consumers as well. Yes. We're speaking with Chris Willis, who is a wonderful attorney, a great guy, a wonderful photographer, and he's a partner at the law firm of Rogers & Hardin. LLP in Atlanta, Georgia, and he's a member of their technology committee, and he focuses on consumer litigation, information technology, computer law, a whole wide range of litigation. And he, you can hear as you listen to how, how articulate he is about all the great things that he is doing to help protect us and help protect companies, which indeed helps protect us. Chris, we were just talking about how these thieves can access customer information like credit cards. Let's talk about, you gave us one example. What are some other examples that you could talk about sure. uh, with there, retailers, for example? Sure. Well, there was a famous one several years ago where there was a major retailer that was using wireless networks within its retail store to transmit information from the point of sale credit card machines to a server that was there in the store, and then the server was hooked to the internet and it would approve the transactions over the internet. Well, what happened was the credit card numbers that were being transferred over the wireless network at the store weren't being encrypted. And so some identity thieves, some credit card number thieves, sat outside the store and intercepted the wireless communications that were within the store and downloaded hundreds or thousands of people's credit card numbers as they were being processed for purchases in the store. Then they used those credit card numbers for fraud. That was a a very high-profile example that occurred several years ago, and it was a real wake-up call because at the time there had never been a case like that of wireless interception um, like that. But there's been a number of instances like that where people's information is going over an unsecured wireless connection, and it's being intercepted by people who just sit there with a radio receiver tuned to the right frequency and reading that data and stealing credit card information that way. There's also been a number of instances, unfortunately, of successful hacks into financial institutions by hackers. They literally attack the bank's own systems, and they are able to get into the bank's system, you know, steal money, transfer money out of accounts, and do things like that. Um, and they're able to, to affect hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars worth of transactions before they get caught doing that, um, which has been a big wake-up call for banks to continually evaluate the security of their own computer systems. And then there have been a number of instances where uh, personal information of consumers was being sent through the mail or through a courier service. 
say, on a CD or a DVD on a hard drive. Or a backup, or a backup drive, yeah. Right, or a backup tape from a, from a backup drive is being sent, sent to storage or something like that. And if those have been lost or stolen during transit, there have been fears that that information might be compromised and used. And, a lot, and now the standard has really become when you send information like that through some physical form of communication, like a courier or the mail or something like that, you really ought to encrypt it so that even if someone manages to get a hold of the disk or the tape or whatever, they're not able to make sense of it because it's encrypted. Exactly. And then there's also guys like Ron Hempel, who was on my show. He was an identity thief and, and a high-end one. He used to pay people in banks and in uh, financial institutions, like managers, give them $10,000, and then they would give him what he wanted. So there's also the, uh, you know, the dirty employee who's willing to, to sell stuff or to use it or to transfer it himself, which unfortunately is, is really tough on, on these retailers and as well as these financial institutions and credit card companies. It really is because, you know, it's, it's hard enough to check for threats that are coming in from outside your system, but then having to monitor the activity of, of specific employees makes it even more difficult. Um, you know, but I have to point out that also, you know, one of the biggest threats and numerically one of the most um, consistent ones that I have seen is the existence of malware on a consumer's individual computer. They get it through advertising on websites. They get it by visiting websites, and then it will, you know, record their keystrokes, steal their passwords, and then the thieves will use that information to access their credit card accounts or bank accounts online. And that's really a tough one because I've had several company uh, com- consumers and customers of banks that that it happened to them, and then the bank said, "Well, it's your fault because you had it on your computer," and you know, really, that's an awfully big burden for consumers to even know. I read something in uh, Consumer Reports this past month about how many people had malware on their computer without even knowing it. What do we do about that, Chris? Well, it is very difficult to know because unlike a virus, malware doesn't usually cause your computer to behave any differently. It, It doesn't crash your computer or keep it from starting up or cause it to have error messages. It you know, it, it wants your computer to continue working normally while it behind the scenes records your passwords, records your personal information, and then reports that back to the thieves who designed the malware in the first place. And there are really a couple of things that you can do as a web user to try to protect yourself, but you have to recognize that everybody is at some risk. You know, one thing is be careful about the websites that you visit. If you visit a large variety of different websites and you don't really know who the person is or who the company is that's running the website, you're at a greater risk of getting malware on your computer. Another thing is to make sure that you keep your antivirus and anti-spyware and anti-malware program on your computer current and up-to-date at all times because there's constantly new ones coming out, but if you're protected with your antivirus or anti-spyware software, that gives you a measure of defense that some people don't have. Those and, are really and, and that's important to, and I just want to piggyback on that because it is so important to download the most current or have the automatic updates, but then you have to run it. <laughs> you have to set up to run it. Like I know mine runs every single night. Right. But, you know, you some people say, well, I have it on my computer. And I said, well, do you run it? Well, when I remember. So set it up to do it automatically. Just keep that computer on all night. Right. And the other thing, the final thing that you can do to protect yourself is really what we talked about before. And that is carefully monitoring your bank account, carefully monitor your credit card account information so that you'll see an unauthorized transaction immediately if it comes through. Obviously, you won't have prevented it at that point. But if you catch it quickly, you have a greater chance of making sure the damage is minimal or non-existent to you as a consumer. Exactly. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. You're also listening to Privacy Piracy, and I'm the host, Mari Frank. We are speaking with a wonderful attorney who's from Atlanta. Chris Willis is a partner at the law firm of Rogers & Hardin, LLP in Atlanta, and a member of the Technology Committee, and he is focusing his practice on consumer litigation, information technology, and computer law. So we really have a a techie here who also happens to be really brilliant about the law as well. Speaking about the law, Chris, what kind of laws are out there that are designated to address the kinds of situations that we've been talking about? Well, there have been several things that have been done both at the federal and state level to try to protect consumers' financial information from identity thieves and to 
give businesses guidance about the kind of things that they need to do in order to protect that information. And there's a couple that I can mention. So for example, there's a statute called the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act that came into effect a few years ago. When you open up a credit card account or do other things, you frequently receive a notice that says, this is the notice of our privacy policy. The Graham-Leach-Bliley Act is the statute that created the obligation for financial institutions to give you that notice. But more importantly, the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act creates an obligation on behalf of financial institutions to protect people's uh, personal financial information from theft and take various measures to keep it from being stolen. Adding on to that was a statute that was passed a number of years ago called FACTA, which was uh, an amendment to the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And there's been a lot of development through that statute and through regulations that have come out under it over the last few years. One of the most important developments has been that the federal banking agencies and the Federal Trade Commission have released rules that require financial institutions not only to take steps to maintain the integrity and the privacy of databases or other computer systems that contain personal information, but it also requires them to look for what are called red flags of identity theft. That is, to monitor transactions that they're processing or signs that an identity theft may have occurred. So, for example, if an account is opened and the address doesn't match the address that is on the person's credit report, or if uh, goods are um, ordered and the delivery address is different from the address that's the billing address for the credit card, or there are other suspicious things about the transaction, the financial institutions are supposed to be on the lookout for those red flags to catch those transactions before they cause any harm. Um, so that's been a very important uh, legislative and regulatory development that's still ongoing today. I mean, there have been new red flag regulations coming out as recently with, as within the past year, and businesses are all, I think, working to try to keep up with those things. And then at the state level, a number of states have enacted laws that say, if you're a financial institution and you have experienced a breach of data relating to your consumers, you have to give notification to the consumers who've been affected by that. So if I am a credit card accepting merchant and I get notice that a hundred of my customers have had their credit card numbers stolen by a thief, either an employee or an outside hacker or something like that, under many states' laws, I'm required to send a notice to those hundred consumers to let them know what happened. And the purpose of that legislation is to allow consumers to then take action to protect themselves. Look at your credit card statements, cancel your card or get a new one issued by your issuer under a new card number or things like that to try to prevent the harm from occurring uh, before it actually occurs. Yes, and California had the very first security breach legislation. And basically there we had the uh, the stick and, you know, we also gave the carrot. And the carrot was if you're a company that has sensitive data and you encrypt it, and it is stolen, then you do not have that duty to notify. So most, many of the states have followed California legislation and give a break to the companies that are willing to take the steps to encrypt the data. And I think there's a couple that don't that ask you to disclose even if it's encrypted. But I think basically that's that's the bottom line. If if you're gonna if you're a business and you have uh, financial data. It's a very good idea to encrypt it, whether it's financial or sensitive data, including a social security number and birth date and credit card numbers, et cetera. If you encrypt it, at least in the state of California, you are not going to be required to notify all of the potential victims. Well, you're right, Mari, that encryption is one of the most important tools that businesses have to protect information. And, you know, that the thinking on encryption has even gone so far that the, the major credit card associations like Visa and MasterCard have a series of rules that merchants and financial institutions have to follow with regard to how they handle credit card information. And encryption and storage of the information in an encrypted form is one of the sort of landmark biggest parts of those security standards that are imposed by the credit card association. And so that tells you that's that's a best practice. So if you're a business that collects sensitive data about your customers, and you're in California especially, or anywhere really, that's going to be considered a best practice. So if you have a security breach, you may really be uh, putting yourself in a, in a position where you have legal exposure for not encrypting, even though you aren't forced necessarily under the law to encrypt. Well, that's true, because the, the laws may or may not require encryption for particular businesses in particular situations. But the point is that the companies that handle a large volume of this information, like the credit card merchants, clearinghouses, and issuers, 
have recognized under the security standards that storing it in an encrypted form all the time is a very good preventative measure because if a breach occurs, whether it's through hacking or a, an employee stealing it or someone intercepting it or something like that, you're much less likely to have an event that can result in a financial loss. And so I think you're right. I think the idea of encryption has become widespread enough that it's possible that a business can be criticized for storing it in an unencrypted form. Right. I think the only worry that we have is, like you were saying just a minute ago, if it's an unscrupulous employee and that employee happens to be the one that has the key to decrypt, <laughs> then then we've got a problem. If you know, if you have an angry employee who happens to be the IT manager or the CC, CSO or whatever, then then you've got a problem. But otherwise, it really is a good practice. And then just be very very careful of, to make your IT manager and everyone else in that department real happy. I think. <laughs> right, and I think that I think the dishonest employee phenomenon is one that, that no system can ever fully protect against because there always have to be people who have the keys to the vault, so to speak. Yes. But by limiting that to employees on a need to know or a need to use basis, and um, by encrypting the data so that it's safe against everybody else, all the outside, you're not going to completely eliminate this phenomenon, but you're going to really, really cut down on it a lot. And have an audit, an audit trail so you know who was in there when, because that sure helps as well to at least figure out who it was who did it. Well, certainly. And if employees know there's accountability in terms of logging who's in the network at what time doing what, right. then it can serve to deter that sort of behavior and possibly prevent it from I think it would be really helpful. I know you're, you're so savvy about all this. Why don't you explain to my audience, how does information uh, actually flow through the various companies when you use a credit card? I don't think people really understand those steps. Well, sure. And the thing is, given the, the modern communication technology that we have, it happens so quickly that it would be amazing for most people to realize exactly what's going on when you swipe your credit card through a machine at, a, at the grocery store or at a gas station or something like that. But there can be as many as several steps between you doing that with your credit card and the bank that issued your credit card actually approving the transaction. It starts, of course, with the merchant. You know, you, you're at a gas station store, you're at a retailer or whatever, and you swipe the credit card, and that information first travels through some computer systems that are owned by the merchant itself. Many retailers utilize a, a processing company that might um, take that data and serve as a clearinghouse for it to take different cards and route them through different places, sort of like a, a train conductor sending Visa transactions through the Visa system, MasterCard transactions through the MasterCard system, for example. So there's, there can be a third-party payment processor involved. Then, for a lot of transactions, they may go through the Visa or MasterCard system, which acts as a clearinghouse. That is, a place between the merchants and the processors on one hand and the issuing banks on the other and the Visa or MasterCard system can have the information travel through to allow those transactions to get to the bank that issued them. Because not all Visas or MasterCards are issued by the same bank. There's lots of banks that issue both of those credit cards. And ultimately, the approval has to get routed back to the issuing bank. So if you have, for example, a Bank of America uh, credit card, Bank of America needs to be the one that says either this charge is approved or isn't approved. So the message between the time that you swipe the card and the time that it's approved actually goes through three or four different steps, and then the approval has to come back through all those same steps. So it's an incredibly complicated process, and it involves a lot more steps than most people realize, but it all happens incredibly quickly thanks to the modern technology that we have. Yeah, the automation is unbelievable, isn't it? What are some steps now that consumers can take to prevent their personal information from getting stolen when they're online? Because I know that's, you know, the Internet is the one that's so scary, I think. Well, there's a couple of things, I think. You know, one thing that's very easy and that I, I hope a lot of people are very attuned to now is be very suspicious of emails that you receive that ask you to go to a website, to hit a link, and to update your account information or log in because there's a problem with your account. You see these that purport to be from banks. You see them from eBay or PayPal or whatever, and they're not really sent by the bank or by eBay or PayPal. They're sent by criminals who are sending the emails as a scam to try to get you to click on that link. And when you click on that link, either they will try to get you to provide your passwords to them so they can log on to your account and engage in fraud, or clicking on the link may take you to a website that will install malware on your computer that they then can use to engage in some sort of theft or fraud. So 
your antenna really should be going up anytime you receive an email that says it's from your bank or from PayPal or something like that, because almost never are those legitimate, and almost always they are an attempt to set you up for some sort of fraud later. Those are called phishing emails, and they're very pervasive now. I get them all the time, both at work and at home, and you should never click on any link that you see in things like that. And you know, real financial institutions almost never send out emails like that. And similar ones like that are the ones you get from somebody who's trying to entice you, such as you know, uh, they want to give you money and they want to involve you in something that you could earn some some money for just uh, helping them out and responding to the email. Or they, I've been getting these ones that they want to engage my services as, as an attorney, and I know that it's bogus. So. Whenever you see those phishing, and by the way, phishing is spelled P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G, phishing emails. And what the joke is, is that they're phishing to hook you in. That's what they're trying to do. So just delete those things like like Chris says, just delete them. And so that's one thing that consumers can can do to, to help themselves. Another thing is to be careful about the sites that you visit on the internet with with modern search engines and um, with links all over the place and advertisements all over the place, it's easy to, to lead yourself down a trail of a lot of websites that you may be visiting that you don't really know who is responsible for running and maintaining them. And so your best, safest practice is really to stick to sites that you know that are run by legitimate businesses that you're familiar with. Because the more you stray off of that, the greater risk you take of hitting a site that may install something on your computer without you knowing about it. Um, obviously, keeping your antivirus software running and up-to-date, like we talked about earlier in the show, is a very important measure for consumers to take. Another thing that some people don't think about is if you're using a wireless network in your home, make sure to use encryption on it. We talked for a minute about the importance of businesses encrypting information. Right. That same thing applies to us as consumers. If you have wireless Internet in your home, you've got a wireless router and you're accessing it wirelessly through different parts of your house, be sure to turn on the encryption on that. Don't leave that data unsecured because then it can be intercepted by a thief just like the thieves intercepted the data from the retailer that I was talking about earlier in the show. So that's another important thing. A couple of other things that consumers can do to protect themselves on the Internet. If you have accounts online, like your bank account or your credit card account or things like that, change your passwords frequently. That way if somebody has had access to your uh, account password by some sort of hook or crook, then you're changing the password to prevent that from being done and set up those automatic notifications. A lot of the banks and the credit card issuers and other financial institutions have services just like what you described earlier in the show. They'll alert you if your password's changed. They'll alert you if money goes out of your account. They'll alert you for a variety of reasons. And if you turn those alerts on, you'll be warned about something unscrupulous happening with your account. And the final thing that I would say for consumers to protect themselves on the Internet is something we also mentioned earlier. That is, monitor your accounts closely. If you keep track of what transactions are showing up on your credit card account and you keep track of what transactions are showing up in your bank account, you'll never be more than a couple of days away from seeing a transaction that's not authorized by you. And the faster that you catch those things, the less damage they do and the better position you are in as a consumer to make sure that you don't actually end up having to pay that loss. Those are great Let me piggyback on a couple of those just to add to them. And that is when you're talking about the passwords that Chris was saying, you must have a password that you change often. I'll tell you, I recommend also that you have a password that's really complex that has at least, I I have 12. I always have 12 numbers, letters, and characters that I mix up and I have to, I've memorized them and um, and mix them up and have more complex for your financial stuff than you do maybe for some other you know, network that you get into, make it very complex. And another thing is when you were talking about never click, you know, on a URL in, a, in an email, you ha- I mean, you have to be very, very careful because sometimes what will happen is you'll see a, you'll type in, let's say, Bank of America or WellsFargo.com and you think you typed it in right and maybe you were one letter off and there are some farming websites they call it farming because you go there and they kind of farm you in and then you think you're at your website for your bank but you're really not there and it looks just like yours and you put in your password and so that's another little trick that they do always be double careful that you 
don't that you actually type in the URL, the address right into your browser. Don't just use something that you've had on your computer before because it might be pointing somewhere else. Let's see another thing when you were talking about encryption. Um, I get a lot of emails from victims who give me their social security number right in their email. Never put anything confidential in an email. If if you want to send somebody something very very confidential that your attorney, your accountant, your a friend use WinZip and encrypt a 250-bit encryption and then call your friend or call your attorney or call your accountant and give them the password to open that up because email is surely not safe, right? It definitely isn't. And that's the practice that I use when I uh, swap confidential information with clients. You know, if we have uh, some information that relates to a case that I'm working on that has people's social security numbers or any kind of personal information like that in it, we do exactly what you just said. We use WinZip. We use a very hard encryption on it, and then I send it to them either over email or I may burn it on a disk and send it to them, and then I call them and tell them the password over the phone. And that way there's no way for someone to intercept and have both the data and the password together. I know. I couldn't. I, I can't tell you how many times people, I'll, I'll tell them to do the, you know, the WinZip. I'll show them. I'll have the accountant's office do that, and then what happens is they'll send me the password. I go, why would you do that? Somebody who has access to my computer could see that. Right. So it's it's crazy. You know, people are not thinking straight. They they just don't get it that email is not protected. Right. Well, and the good thing, and, you know, the thing is, a lot of email occurs over webmail accounts. Right. Gmail, Hotmail, Yahoo, something like that. And unless you've got a really hard password on that, and even sometimes if you do, people can gain access to your webmail account just over the Internet. Um, and so, you know, the idea that email is safe and secure is one that we should all try to stay away from. Right. Yeah, and when you're talking about Gmail or Hotmail or some of those accounts, if you've, I'm sure you've read of that, about this, but I'm not sure if all of my listeners know that there are the Gmail, the Google has allowed companies to pick out information, and that's how you get a lot of the uh, advertisements to you that they're actually reviewing your emails. So that is not confidential, and don't think it is. But the reason you get the free email is because of those advertisers. So it's kind of insidious and it's really hidden, but just know that email is not confidential under any circumstances at all. Right. And you know, the thing is, most people don't, if you say, I need you to encrypt that information, they say, well, how would I go about doing that? But almost everybody is familiar with WinZip because it's a free program that lots and lots of people have. Right. But most people don't, don't know that WinZip has a great encryption facility built into it. And it's a really good, strong encryption that is easy to use. It's just clicking a couple of buttons and entering a password, and then you've got an encrypted file on your hands. Exactly. And and they tell you exactly how to do it. It's very, very simple. In fact, I have a new assistant, and we taught her in five minutes, and she was able to do it. So that's incredible. Well, let's talk about skimming. You know, what? why don't you tell my audience what it is and, and how they can prevent it? Well, skimming is a relatively recent form of credit card fraud that works when you are physically using your actual physical credit card in a place of business. And restaurants are one of the places where this has occurred. And when I've heard about skimming, I've heard about it mostly occurring overseas. I haven't heard about it so much in the United States, but it's actually happened to me overseas. And what happens is an unscrupulous employee will have a device on their person, under their clothes, called a skimmer. And it's only about a three-by-five little device. It's right. small cause, so they can put it in their pocket. It's very small, and it works off of by reading the magnetic stripe on your card. And so they don't have to even physically touch the card to the skimmer. They can just run the card near the skimmer. So what they'll do is they'll take your card, and they'll brush your card up against whatever part of the, their clothing the skimming device is located in. And the skimming device will read the magnetic stripe on your card, and we'll record that, and it'll have a memory card in it. So all day long, an unscrupulous employee will sit there and skim people's credit cards and um, record credit card numbers. Then they take the, the data file that they've created with everybody's credit card numbers in it, and they provide it to a thief in exchange for money, presumably. And the thief then uses that Stripe information to create duplicate of, a duplicate of your credit card. And so this actually happened to me last summer in South Africa. And South Africa is a place where skimming has been known to occur. And I got my credit card skimmed somewhere in Cape Town. And I didn't find out about it until I came back home. Um, I landed in the airport in the United States. And I had a telephone message waiting for me from American Express, who is my card issuer, saying, 
there are these transactions that occurred in Johannesburg. We don't think those were you, but give us a call and let us know. Well, as it turns out, I had never been in Johannesburg on that trip. And so I was able to call them back and say, no, those weren't legitimate transactions. And fortunately, American Express caught them, which they very frequently do. Um, but the skimming scheme is one that relies on you know, somebody having access to your physical card. Now, how to prevent it? Because it relies on using your actual card, one thing that people do is they keep their card in their possession at all times. So, for example, there are some restaurants in Cape Town where instead of taking your card and going out of your site to run your credit card, the waiter actually brings a machine to your table, and you take your card out, you swipe the card yourself, and the card never leaves your hands. The waiter never has access to your card. And they have those in Europe, too, quite a bit, much more than they have in this country. Right. So that's just keeping control of your card and making sure that someone doesn't have the opportunity to run it by one of those scanning machines, a skimmer, is the only way to prevent skimming from occurring. And the good news is, and that's great that that happened to you with American Express because they're really good. And I had that happen to me. Somebody got $20,000 worth of truck accoutrements. Wow. <laughs> and if, you know, I'm only 5'2". If you could imagine, you know, these huge tires. I wouldn't even be able to reach the, the pedal, you know, to get on into the into the truck. Right. But um, yeah, somewhere in the desert, which Palmdale, where I've never been to Palmdale, California. And uh, so that did happen here. So you can be skimmed right here or like you said, overseas. But if you're monitoring your credit card statements, you know, you get them, you have, you have to tell the credit card company within 60 days, which is very simple because you'll, you'll get your credit card statement and you have 60 days from that, that statement to tell them. And you will never be held responsible because you have the Fair Credit Billing Act that protects you from fraud and says that the most that you'll be responsible for is $50. But Amex and Visa and MasterCard and Discover have all said, we're going to waive that if you're right. a victim of fraud. So, so the good news is if you're using your credit card and you're skimmed, don't freak out too much. Tell them right away. But if you are skimmed with your debit card, why don't you tell them the difference with that? That's really terrible. Well, the laws treat credit and debit cards differently in terms of protection against fraud. And the Fair Credit Billing Act, which you just mentioned, which sort of maximizes your liability for credit card transactions at $50, which has been waived by a number of issuers and, and card associations, none of that applies to debit cards. Debit cards are covered by a different statute called the Electronic Fund Transfers Act. And those don't provide the, the $50 limit. In fact, what I think I recall is that there's a $500 limit. and the, only, only for the first two days. Right. And then if you don't catch it within that certain window, I don't think you have any protection at all. And you know what? I don't even think, I don't ever, ever, ever have a debit card. I have an ATM card. So like when I travel or you know, what, just like you do, I have my ATM card so I can get a good rate of return at these ATM machines, but it does not have the Visa MasterCard logo because not only are you not covered by the Fair Credit Billing Act, which people don't realize because they see that Visa MasterCard logo on there, but the money is siphoned out of your account and, and you're just sitting there with all these checks bouncing or, you know, your automatic payments bouncing and it's a total mess and you have to beg for that money back. So, when you're traveling, or I, I don't even think you should ever, ever, ever have a debit card. I wouldn't use one under any circumstances. But, you know, at the very least, when you go out of the country and when you're online, never use a debit card. Well, I remember you telling me uh, this about debit cards the first time that you and I were talking. And I don't own a debit card, and I never use one for that exact reason. You're wonderful. You're wonderful. And we are speaking with a wonderful man, a fabulous award-winning photographer, and an incredible attorney. We're speaking with Chris Willis, who's a partner at the law firm of Rogers and Hardin, LLP in Atlanta, Georgia. And you, you kind of hear a little twang with that Southern accent. It's not real heavy. It's just kind of cute. And he is a member of the Technology Committee, and he focuses on consumer financial litigation, information technology, computer law. He just has a wide range of complex litigation. So let's talk about your practice here using credit. Well, we just talked about that. You use credit cards instead of debit cards, right? I do in the United States. Yes. And but when I travel, I almost never use either of them. What do you use? I just generally take cash with me. But so you, you'll go to, um, if you need more cash, you'll just go to the, the ATM and use an ATM machine for your, not for a debit card, but for your ATM card? Yes, but that's only happened once in the last 10 years. 
because normally just the way that I travel, I try to prepay for as much as I possibly can. Yes, yes. And I, so I've got my plane tickets paid for. I've got my land tours paid for. I've got my hotels paid for. And really, I only need cash for you know day to day things like meals or you know souvenirs or things like that. Right. And so I we're pretty good. My wife and I are about figuring out how much cash we need on a trip, and we just take it. We divide it up between ourselves. We don't put all of it in one place. We never walk around with it. Obviously, we right. use the hotel safes when we have access to those. But you know, you have to understand that a lot of the places that we travel don't even their credit cards and ATM cards aren't even accepted in a lot of the places that we go. Right. You know, we do a lot of travel in Africa or you know South America or places like that where you know you don't have places to use things like that. So cash is really king in a lot of the places that we go, and that's what we tend to do. Right. How about uh, do you use like Traveler's checks, do you ever do something like that? We used to, but then we started having issues where we would go places where they weren't accepted. Uh Um, And, you know, we haven't used them in several years now. And we've actually been on tours with people in places where they had a very, very, very hard time converting their traveler's checks to cash. And their traveler's checks weren't accepted in any of the places we were. I remember being in Rwanda about four years ago. And we were on a tour with, it was just the two of us and another couple. And um, they had lots of money in traveler's checks, but no place would accept them. Oh. And we ended up spending, you know, close to half a day one day trying to find a bank in Kigali, Rwanda, that would change their traveler's checks for them. And finally they found one, but it was a huge tribulation. Wow. So af- after that, we just, we don't use traveler's checks anymore. In but Rwanda, do they have ATM machines? They do, but only in the capital. Ah, And so. so the thing is, when you're there as a tourist, one of the things that you're likely to be doing is you're likely to be up in the mountains visiting mountain gorillas, the same ones <laughs> that Diane Fossey was famous for. You know, right, and I saw them. some of your pictures, so I know you do that. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that, that, the place where you do that is a several-hour drive away from the capital. Even though it's not a big country, it's very mountainous. So driving from one place to another takes a long time. Yeah. There, I don't I don't think there are any ATM machines up in the area where the Volcanoes National Park is, or at least I don't right. remember seeing any. So you would have had to change cash to the cash of the country as well. It depends. It depends on the country, and it depends on what you're using the money for, but frequently, yes. Yeah, yeah, wow. You know, that reminded me of, um, of something else. Before you travel, and, and I know you know this, but there are some times that I had an attorney friend of mine who was driving on the um, the tollway in Spain and his credit card didn't work because he didn't tell his credit card company before he left that he was going to be going to traveling around Europe. So right. just a, I learned from that that whenever I'm leaving the country, I always call the credit card company of the uh, for the credit cards that I'm going to use and I tell them, look, don't think it's fraud. I'm going out of the country. These are the countries that I'm going to visit, so I'm going to use it. So please don't don't just stop, you know, my credit card from working, or I'm going to be in real trouble. So it's that, just... that is very important. And the reason for that is what what you mentioned, and it's because the credit card companies have these incredible systems for differentiating between transactions that are really you and transactions that are false. Right. And when you're sitting here running around, let's say I'm in Atlanta. I'm running around Atlanta. I shop at my same grocery store and my same gas station that I go to all the time. They're not going to pick that up as a fraudulent transaction because I go there all the time. If all of a sudden my card shows up in Nairobi or you know something like that, they may believe it's a fraudulent transaction unless I've told them in advance that I'm going to be there. And so I do the exact same thing. Before I leave on a trip, I tell them what dates I'm going to be in what country. Important, very important. We are speaking with Chris Willis, who is a wonderful attorney in Atlanta, and he's a partner at the law firm of Rogers and Hardin. He's a member of the Technology Committee, and he focuses on consumer litigation, information technology, and computer law. And he is wonderful, and you must see his fantastic uh, photography. It's it's really professional, even though he claims that he's an amateur. He really wins awards, and he's wonderful. And I don't know if you want to give that website, but uh, it's it's terrific. Sure, I'm happy to. It's a public website, and you know the whole reason we have it up there is so that everybody can see what we've been able to experience in the various countries that we visited. The website is um, www.pbase, P-B-A-S-E, dot com, then a slash, C. Willis, C-W-I-L-L-I-S. And then you'll see all the trips, all the, the pictures we've taken on every trip that we've taken since 2002. And you get some of my bird photography. You get, you know, a pair of bald eagles that I photographed last year raising two chicks to maturity. 
you know, all kinds mm. of things like that. And I love the gorilla ones. I just am in awe of all of the the ape pictures that you had, too. Just so sweet. Well, those gorillas are a wonderful thing to visit. And watching them just sort of interact with each other and do their thing conveys something that a photograph really can't. And that is they have so many mannerisms and ways of doing things that are so similar to humans. It's so easy to see the relationship between humans and apes when you get to watch them play with each other, interact with each other, and things like that. And they do things that you can picture another person doing. It's, it's uh, kind of scary, huh? <laughs> well, let me ask you when you travel, and this is kind of a, a little bit off of the credit card issue, but, you know, you've seen so many cultures and experiences. I know you've been many, many places in the world. What about, have you seen any privacy issues that come to mind when you are traveling? Well, one of them is this, and that is when you apply for a visa. Because some of the countries that my wife and I visit require you to apply for and get a visa from the country before you leave. Um, and so that involves putting in an application with their embassy or a consulate you know, in Washington or someplace else. Uh-huh. And what's interesting is they'll require various pieces of information from you. Some of the pieces of information are pretty straightforward. They want to know when you're arriving and when you're leaving and how long you'll be in the country and the purpose of your visit. That all seems pretty normal. But I actually applied for a visa a couple of years ago where they wanted a copy of my bank statement so that they could see that I have sufficient money so that I could would not become destitute in their country. Oh, my goodness. And so that raised <laughs> an issue that I remember talking about with some other travelers about, do you really provide your bank statement? And if you do, what do you do to try to protect the privacy of your information? And some travelers I know who are going to that particular country just refuse to, to provide the bank statement altogether. Um, I was worried that we wouldn't get our visa if we didn't do that. So I took my bank statement and I redacted the um, account number off of it and anything else that could be used to steal my identity. And then I sent it in that way. Right. But I mean, that's a bothersome thing. It is bothersome. When you apply for a visa to go there. Obviously, some countries don't require a, a visa application up front, or they'll, or they'll give you a visa when you arrive at the airport. You know, South Africa is like that, for example. You don't have to have a visa for South Africa. They just issue you one when you show up. And, of course, all they're interested in there is seeing when you're leaving and what the purpose of your visit is. How about fingerprints? Have you been fingerprinted like we're doing to a lot of people that are coming to, to be tourists in our country? I don't believe so. I have, been, I have had my fingerprint scanned when I reenter the United States. Ah, um, that's kind of I a privacy not, issue, too. I don't too. believe I've had my fingerprint taken by a foreign country. I think Brazil is doing it now because they were very angry at us because we were doing it. And although I was in Brazil two years ago and they didn't take my fingerprints, but I think right after I came back, I remember that that was the big issue, that now they were fingerprinting people coming into Brazil. Well, there's been a lot of animosity between Brazil and the United States on visa fees also. Yes. I've never been to Brazil, but I heard about that. Well, you would love it, so you should go, because I know you you would just be thrilled with what you see over there. And the it's Fabeles. on my short list. There's, there's several <laughs> spots in Brazil that I really want to go to. And Rio is really wonderful. It really is a wonderful place. And, uh, it's, I mean, the pictures that you could take there, you know, from up by the Christ and, and also in the favelas, which are, you know, these um, – slums that are on the mountainside looking over the ocean. It's, it is a, a real incredible sight. But, you know, I wanted to tell you that just recently I had to travel within the United States and I was coming back from Albuquerque from a meeting and um, they wanted to have me go through one of the scanners. And I had just read the day before that TSA had promised uh, C- Congress that they were not going to be storing the images, but they are storing the images. So I refused it. And, um, and so they said, well, you have to wait for somebody to pat you down. And so they, I said, that's fine, but I have a plane to catch. So get me someone, but they, they got me a woman. She patted me down and I was kidding her that she does good massages. And then before I had to go, could go through, they had to take her gloves that she had used and put them through a machine to see if there were any explosives on her hands from the pat down of me. Right. It was, it was just an it was really ridiculous. I mean, I think we need to be doing what they're doing in Israel, which is, you know, they they don't do uh, racial profiling because many of the people look very similar, you know, the, the people who live in that area of the world. So they have to do psychological profiling. And I, I 
it just would make more sense. I was about to take out my sheriff reserve card and show them, but I didn't want to cause a problem. I was really nice just because I wanted to get through the thing, but it was, um, I didn't want to go through that. I, just... I haven't yet been through an airport that required me to go through one of those machines. Right. Um, I mean, I think there are, are maybe one or two lines at the Atlanta airport that have those machines, but if you don't want it, you just get in a different line. Well, see, it, it, this is funny because another privacy officer friend of mine um, went through another line with her son, and you know, we both, you know, I just went to one short line and she went to another, but it wasn't marked which one was which, so she didn't have to do that, and I did. Oh. So that was the the part that I, you know, it wasn't really revealed what was going to happen. So it was kind of a shock, but um, but I didn't do it. I know that that's been a, a major issue that's been talked about, and it really requires, you know, pe- the, the the people who are responsible for airline security to to weigh people's privacy versus the importance, which we can all agree on, of keeping people with bombs and weapons off of airplanes. But what are your thoughts about the new Consumer Financial Commission? My thought in general is that is an organization that really create a lot of negative effects on the consumer financial services industry and therefore in the availability of credit. You're dealing with a new administrative agency that's got very wide-ranging powers to regulate and govern almost every aspect of consumer financial services in the United States. And, you know, my guess is once the, the um, new organization is set up within the government, they're going to be issuing a large number of new regulations and uh, making a lot of choices that are, you know, at root probably political choices. And I am afraid that the impact of all those is going to be to really increase the costs for businesses who are trying to lend money. And when those costs increase, one of two things happens, or maybe both. Either those businesses um, have to pass those costs on to consumers in the form of higher interest rates or other fees, or they have to make fewer loans or issue fewer credit cards um, only to the people who have better credit, because people with good credit are generally a good risk, and you're, they're likely to repay their loans or pay off their credit cards. But people who have less than stellar credit present a greater risk. And if there's not an ability for the lenders to make money by lending to those people, they just won't do it. And so I worry that the, the Consumer Financial Protection Agency will have the effect of restricting the availability of credit and will make credit more expensive for everyone. I'm kind of concerned because, you know, our economy is in bad shape and we don't even have money for the Federal Trade Commission to, we, they don't have the resources to, to do the investigations that they need to do already. And here we are um, putting together another commission that I'm not sure that we have the resources to even complete the objectives that they would have. So that's a whole nother aspect of it is well, that. Uh, and not only that, but the, <clears throat> the, the pace of rulemaking at the federal level is frequently very slow. And so I can see a situation in which we have this legislation that creates the Consumer Financial Protection Agency, and it was created you know, by a Congress and by an administration with particular goals in mind. But by the time the rulemaking ends up going through its course, we'll have a different uh, group of people in power in Washington, a different party, a different president, et cetera. And the regulations or whatever that the agency may promulgate may be shifted by the political winds as they're blowing at that time. And so you might have sort of done a big circle around yourself that might not end up doing much if those political changes occur. Oh, it's crazy. We can't solve all of this, can we? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I definitely don't think so. Well, we are just oh, just a little bit out of time. Do you have any final thoughts for consumers and business people that are listening to this about just about the whole world of technology and information management? That's, that's a lot to answer. Well, I think, I think the final thought that I would leave everyone with is information is your best friend and monitoring your own accounts, monitoring your bank accounts and monitoring your credit card statements is the most important thing you can do to help yourself and make sure that you don't end up a victim. Well, I think you are terrific. And I want you to give your website for your personal uh, photography as well as your website for your wonderful law firm. Sure. Well, the the law firm website is www.rh-law.law.com, and my personal photography website is www.pbase.com/cwillis. Well, Chris, thank you so much. You're wonderful, and I want you to send me the URL so I can see the pictures of Machu Picchu. I'll be happy to do it, and thank you very much for having me on the show today. You're wonderful, Chris. We'll talk to you soon.
You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Please join us every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on KUCI. Also visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. And there you can listen to our archived interviews. You could download podcasts and you can see our upcoming guests. And please write us emails about what's important to you about privacy in the information age. Thank you. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.